Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food production and food consumption. I've recently realized that, you know, I used to spend a lot of time talking about diet, talking about animal fats, animal proteins. And, uh, you know, from the property rights challenges and all of the challenges that we have at the local level, the infrastructure uh, impedance in food and fuel, I kind of drifted away. And today I thought, you know what, it's time to get Nina Teichels back on here and start talking about some things in your personal life, in particular, your milk, meat and egg consumption. Nina Teichel's joining me now. And can I just say that you don't check in with me often enough? Is that fair? You don't ask often enough, Trent. Oh, boom. <laughs> I think I just got burned. True story. Best selling author, The Big Fat Surprise, continuing to get information to the public about health and wellness, in particular, diet. And my question continues to be, which we won't spend any time here, why is this investigative journalist from New York City doing more to explain the essentialness of milk, meat, and eggs in your diet? How have you been, Nina? How's the fight going, and why are you still fighting? Uh, you know, the fight just has to happen. I mean, what? why am I I've been doing this now, so I spent almost 10 years researching for my book, The Big Fat Surprise, that's still, uh, that's still like being, it's still published and out there and you know, you can get a copy of it. But I'm, and then I've spent the last 10 years working on this. And I guess I'm still at it because it just needs to happen. I mean, it needs to happen for me for two reasons. One is people are sick. 93% of American adults have some form of metabolic disease like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, 93% of us. And so I feel for those people. I hear from them every day how much they're suffering and then how they get radically better by cutting out starches and sugars and eating more meat and dairy and eggs. And the second reason for me is I just believe in the truth. Like it, it drives me crazy that there's so much what I now have come to realize just propaganda um, about nutrition and health. And I, I really care about truth. I think truth is a kind of justice that we all, it's all we all deserve to know the truth, um, just period. So and I care about that. That's, you know, it's just like ridiculous and idealistic, but I just keep going. Well, that that should be the driver in all of us in seeking the truth. But the truth of the matter is that it seems as though most people want to perpetuate a lie instead of digging down and getting to the truth. And the other thing, Nina, is that I am, as I'm out speaking or just visiting with folks, I, I continually have people say, I'm just one person, I can't make a difference. And yet, if you look at the information you've uncovered, it's a series of one person, I think I'm doing that grammatically correct, one person that has started this whole shift, and we want to talk about Walter Willett and what he has done recently, but let's go back because you and I have visited with this. I want to go back to Ansel Keys at, uh, I believe he was at the University of Minnesota, and, and what that all means in today's world, because this is not something that just started. It dates back to the 60s. 
Okay, so let's talk about what it is, and that is the anti-meat sentiment in this country, but really more broadly the anti-animal food. So the recommendation that we shouldn't eat red meat, eggs, full fat, regular dairy, that goes back to, amazingly, let me talk about making a difference. This scientist truly made a difference, a very powerful, aggressive, self-confident individual named Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota, as you said, his theory uh, in the 1950s, when America was obsessed with what causes heart disease, which had been relatively rare in the early 1900s. And then all of a sudden, President Eisenhower has a heart attack in 1955. The focus of the entire nation is on this question. What does cause heart disease? There really were, there were a number of theories more auto exhausts in the air, vitamin deficiency, the type A personality, you know, scream at everybody and then just fall down dead. But there was one theory proposed by Ansel Keys, namely that it was saturated fat, the kind found mainly in meat and dairy and dietary cholesterol, egg yolk, shellfish, that would clog your arteries, raise your serum cholesterol in your blood and give you a heart attack. And that's called the diet heart hypothesis. And Ansel Keys, as I said, was this enormously forceful individual, could argue anyone to the death, as even his friends described him. And he was able to get onto the very prestigious, at the time, very influential American Heart Association Nutrition Committee. And the year after he joins, the American Heart Association says, look, we, we still don't really have enough, enough evidence for this recommendation, but it's our best guess. Basically, 1961, they tell all American men, because it was just men getting heart disease at that point, to avoid saturated fat and cholesterol as their best measure of protection against heart disease. So that really stays with us today that those ideas from the 1960s, it dramatically changed the way Americans eat. All our, all our livestock was bred to be leaner, all the low fat foods that came on the market. That theory is basically still with us today. And Ansel Keys was by far the most influential nutrition scientist of the last hundred years. Although we're gonna talk about sort of who, who he then passed the mantle onto, who then became currently our most influential nutrition scientist, um, which is Walter Willett at, at Harvard, whom I just published a post on, which is why we're here talking today. Before we get to Walter Willett, just this week, before your post came out, um, by the way, while we're there, where do people go to follow your post? That was on Substack at Unsettled Science. Unsettled Science is the column that I write now on Substack. Okay. You can you can find me on Twitter on face I'm, I'm big fat surprise on Twitter and that's another way to just find me or Facebook um, I'm kind of on Instagram but not much <laughs> uh, we I got banned from Instagram and Facebook I'm pretty proud of that oh, so anyway okay. uh, just this week Nina my mom and my wife and I started making a list a list of our relatives that live to be right at 97 to 104 years old. And they were all born in the teens and the twenties. And they grew up in what the depression, they grew up in these times where things were tough and they all talk about eating large sandwiches and lard is one of those components of healthy living. 
most available vitamin D you can get. And now all of a sudden, everybody recognizes that vitamin D is important after we live through the era of COVID. But there's so much more to this from a nutritional standpoint. The diet of the folks in the teens and the 20s, when they thought they had tough times and were just getting by, were actually eating components that they had on the farm that prolonged their life. There's no doubt about it. Plus, they had a different lifestyle in terms of exercise and the, the amount of sweat that they had. But everything was different then, and those people lived to be 100 years old. Yeah, it definitely wasn't just the exercise because people were not suffering from the rates of chronic disease that we're seeing today. You know, even in the even after there had been a tremendous amount of urbanization and people were in office jobs. I mean, you go back and just look at the people standing in lines, the videos of people standing in line for the opening of the Star Wars movies in the 70s. Every single person in line is thin as rail. And so, I mean, and their dads are all working office jobs at this point. So, I mean, that kind of myth, like, oh, you have to be hauling sacks of stuff and working on a farm to stay healthy is just, you know, not supported by the evidence. Um, and there's clinical trial evidence on that too. But yeah, I mean, we humans, many, I think we don't realize that people were very, very long lived in the United States. Um, at the turn of the century, plenty of people were long lived. They were not, you know, they they were dying. The 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 we had conquered many of the diseases that killed off people early that were mainly infectious diseases. Now we're being felled by all of these chronic diseases, things that have to do with diet. Nina Teichel is my guest, author, best-selling author, The Big Fat Surprise. You need to read it if you haven't. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more. Nina, we have to take a break. We will come back and continue this conversation about uh, proper health and the misinformation that we've been led astray on pretty significantly, actually. I want to first remind you that the National Western coming January 6th through the 21. Now, we were talking about this back in August. It's like, oh, my goodness, it's not, you know, that's a long time off. It's not a long time off. We're now past Halloween. We're charging up on Thanksgiving. Then we'll be at Christmas. Then we'll be at the National Western, Denver, Colorado. And on January the 6th, it kicks off in proper fashion as the All-American Beef Battalion will be serving. It's reported about 500 individuals. If you're a veteran and you are at the National Western, come by. You are invited because all veterans are going to be served the best steak you'll ever eat. Steaksfortroops.com or the National Western, either place. Check out the National Western at every level. Welcome back. Roll route the program. We're going to get right back to Nina Teichels here, the author of The Big Fat Surprise. Nina Teichel is joining us from Manhattan. I'm going to make that assumption. Not even going to ask. doesn't matter where she's coming to us from. Uh, so, Walter Willett. And I want to preface this by saying that I've been to Loma Linda University. I went there in 2012 because they came out with a paper saying that meat eating contributed to climate change. And people just scoffed the dirt and said, oh, my goodness, they just don't get it. Well, guess what? That has permeated not only in the United States, but our friend Belinda Fetke from Australia has been working tirelessly against this same concept. But this all comes back to a guy named Walter Willett from Harvard University. Tell us about that and his relationship with Ansel Keys. Okay, well, 
Walter Willett at Harvard, he was the chair of the nutrition department in the Harvard School of Public Health for 25 years. He's still a professor there, uh, but he from 1991 to 2017, he was the chair of the department. At the very beginning of that time in 1990, 1991, he, start, he starts to embrace vegetarianism. He starts to say things like, probably the correct amount of meat that you need to eat is zero. Um, and, you know, if you're cut out meat out of your diet, you, you get a gold star, he told a Newsday reporter. There was, like, only the tiniest, slimmest data for saying something like that. He had found an association, like, association, not causation, not a clinical trial, but a very weak form of data, a link that he thought was meaningful between red meat and colon cancer. Um, and so based on that, he went out on the road and started talking to reporters about how everybody needs to eat a vegetarian diet. Well, that, and he has since then been consistently involved in, I mean, he publishes, I think I found, you know, over a hundred papers on against meat. It causes cancer. He thinks it causes heart disease. He now, the most recent paper was red meat causes diabetes linked diabetes so let's just go through the scientific problems with this is that his kind of science as i explained in my piece okay it's step one of the scientific process which is we're going to show an association between two things right we don't know if one thing causes the other but it's an association like there's an association between people using umbrellas and rain do the rains cause umbrella cause do the umbrellas <laughs> cause the rain well, Perfect no. analogy. But you know, there's an association there, so you have to go out and test it. That's number step two of the scientific process is you test your hypothesis in clinical trials. So uh, so Walter Willett has he only does this suggestive hypothesis generating science. That's all he does. Those are the kinds of studies he does. Well, his theory that red meat causes diabetes actually has been tested. There are now two systematic reviews that one has 21 clinical trials, the other one has 24 clinical trials. So that's a lot of clinical trials testing the hypothesis, but this is where they actually feed people red meat. Some people get more red meat and then there's a control group getting a regular amount and they can't find that the greater red meat eaters have worse you know, any kind of measure that would suggest diabetes, your average, your glucose, markers of inflammation, any, you know, anything that they, your HbA1c, your blood sugars, none of that looks worse, or none of it is statistically significantly worse for the greater red meat eaters. Okay, that's the actual test of the hypothesis. So then what is step three of the sciences? Okay, you know, either the clinical trials that we've just performed in step two, Either they support the hypothesis or they refute it. In this case, hypothesis refuted. End of story. Let's go find another potential cause for diabetes, right? I mean, I would hold my hand up for sugar and starches. But in any case, you have to, that's the scientific process. So why then, I mean, we've been through the whole scientific process for Walter Willett. Why are we going back to step one with another hypothesis generating paper, which, you know, I talk about in an article, he doesn't just publish this paper, they press release, the Harvard 
press office. They press release it. It generates over a hundred headlines worldwide. That's what I could find on Google. But I mean, we don't know how many more there are. Everybody thinks, oh my God, Harvard says red meat causes diabetes. I guess I'm not going to eat red meat or I'm going to cut back on it. But he's all the way back at step one of the science when we've already, we've just been through this. He's been, this hypothesis has been refuted. So my question, and he does this all the time. So really the question on my piece was why? Why does Walter Willett keep asserting hypotheses that have been disproved? I mean, as an additional data point, when people reduce their sugar and starches and are encouraged to eat more meat, like, like on a low carb or ketogenic diet, they reverse their diabetes. They reverse all the clinical symptoms of type two diabetes. They get off of most of their medications. So when you're, if you, people eating more red meat reverse their type two diabetes, how could red meat be the cause? And just a final data point, you know, let's, you look at the graph of red meat eating in the country. It's been a precipitous de decline by 28% um, in terms of our consumption since 1970. It's more since that, that's from 1970 to 2015, and it's, it's, it's declined greatly since 2015. Meanwhile, in the same period, type two diabetes has skyrocketed, to put it gently. So, I mean, these trend lines just completely don't match up. But the main question I wanted to answer in my Substack was why? Why does Walter Willett keep doing this? And I just found that he has this mixture of personal bias, financial conflicts of interest, and even ideological conflicts of interest that are related to the Seventh-day Adventist church. So we can go through each one of those if you like. You tell me what you want to talk about next. Yeah, I'd like to go through those because it's been too long since I walked through the cult known as the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I can say that because if you are biblical at all, you know that from Jesus to every bit of the Bible talks about meat consumption and that the animals are here to improve the creation and improve human life. And that's one reason when I was in California, I went to this university, for those that may not know, Loma Linda University is owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I want to get a handle on why. I know how it started. It started with Ellen White, who was trying to propel the Kellogg's company into the, the marketplace in the late 1800s because they wanted to replace bacon and eggs for breakfast with cereals. But I well, don't... Well, she had I, a fainting spell. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. She had a fainting spell, or some people think it was epilepsy, when she had this vision of this Garden of Eden diet that was a vegan diet of only fruits and vegetables that would make everyone pure and closer to God. And, you know, meat eating has always been associated in, I mean, has long been associated in human thought and literature with sinfulness and carnality and human, you know, like the human body, because, you know, meat eating does make you strong. Um, it, it really, it does make us more, say, um, more expressive of our sexuality or and it does make people strong and so that's why meat eating was always associated with kind of the dangerous carnal physical part of human beings and so to be ethereal we have to be um vegetarians i mean that was you can see that thinking in people like gandhi i mean it's very common so she had this vision of the vegan diet it became a central it's really a central proponent of the whole church like the most of their advocacy efforts and their advocacy and their proselytizing is centered around promoting this diet 
They have health clinics all over the world. They do, I mean, every aspect of it, like they do cooking classes. They, they're really aggressively involved in health in general, but you know, this diet is part of that. And they bought the Blue Zones company. I don't know if you know them, but they, that's a company that promotes the vegan diet. They are closely connected to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and other influential vegan promoting um, medical group. I mean, it's just, they have, they have, they have an article called, you know, the global success of our, <laughs> of our vegan diet of spreading our word all over the world through diet. I mean, think how powerful that is. We eat three times a day. What better way to show your faith in a religion than to, you know, to reaffirm your faith at every meal. So they, um, so and they did a series out of, Loma, out of Loma Linda University, as you said, a Seventh-day Adventist institution. They did a series of studies that seemed to show that Adventists live longer than average Americans. These are very influential studies called the Seventh-day Adventist studies. They influenced Walter Wilded at Harvard. They were problematic studies and, you know, mainly because you know the Adventists also don't drink or smoke. They live in tight-knit communities, which are known to, you know, prolong life because people feel more socially embedded um you know and the study was conflicted because it was done by loma linda university yeah. which is like asking a hindu who doesn't eat beef like well give us a, your objective assessment of the health benefits of beef you know i mean or to a i mean it's just it, they're conflicted but walter willett was persuaded he, he has been as i document in my piece he's been very much involved in a number of organizations closely tied to the church. He's been their advisor, their scientific advisor of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He's been very, he's just, he's been really closely involved with Adventist groups. Thanks, Nina. We got to get to a break. We're back with the second half of Roll Route after this. Welcome back, Trent Luce. We had uh, Nina Teichel. She had to take off. She's uh, She had to run. I have somebody here, a tie. Cannot. I had to think about that for a moment, but he is joining us from California. We're going to talk about bees. And yes, as I mentioned, there's something buzzing in the air. You know, it's been a while since I talked about how important the whole pollination aspect is and some of the struggles that we continue to have with getting crops pollinated, particularly almond crops in California. Fortunately, today we have a beekeeper himself and co-founder and COO of Bee Hero, Etan. I did this really good when I got to this point. Etai, Sam, help me, help me one more time. Etai. Etai. Cannot. Yes. How are you, Aitai? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> well, other than screwing up Aitai, I was fantastic. It was just a beautiful day, but now here we are. How long have you been in the, the bee and pollination business? I'm sorry? How long have you personally been in the pollination business with bees? Right. So uh, I actually grew up beekeeping. Uh, my family owns the largest beekeeping operation in Israel. And uh, I've been working there since basically for as long as I can remember and until I started Bee Hero. Um, so, uh, so yeah, my entire life is is the right answer because uh, we've been dealing with pollination um, uh, throughout, you know, the history of our uh, 
of our uh, of my family's operation. So, so yeah, pollinating different different crops like almonds uh, in, in Israel as well. Um, um, uh, um, sunflowers, different seed production, avocados, uh, and more. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you and I are having this conversation now, and uh, we're here to talk about bees and pollination. But due to the fact that you're from Israel, is there anything you'd like to say about what we hear about happening in Israel today before we talk about bees and almonds? Um, sure, I don't, I, I don't want to make it a political discussion. Obviously, it's a very complicated, uh, very complicated situation, and people have a lot of different views. Um. It's it's a crazy and strange situation. Um, obviously, um, a lot of people are suffering right now. I think the one thing that is very important to know that this is not a fight between Israelis and Palestinians. It's a fight with a terror organization called Hamas, uh, and um, and a terror organization like Hamas that is just pure evil. Um, you know, we can't let it dictate um, our way of life. Uh, and that is true for the entire uh, Western world, the entire world, probably. Uh, I don't think any innocent people should suffer mm-hmm. because of the actions of a terror organization. I just want to echo one other thing that you said, which I found very inspirational. In fact, you said you're in California. Um, you wish you were there to be making a difference back in Israel now. And that degree of patriotism, I think, is very important. Yes, um, it's 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 something that is very hard to explain. Um, uh, like I told you privately earlier, uh, uh, I'm very um, I'm very happy about the fact my kids don't have to go through the current situation and and, and be under that type of stress. Uh, but at the same time, I, I feel a very strong connection um uh to the place i grew up uh, at and the place i call home and um <clears throat> i i feel obligated to to come help stand there with my brothers and sisters um and uh, do whatever i can to to uh protect our our uh, our country our people um i try to do a lot from here uh engaging in you know uh, um uh different discussions um and uh, other activities uh for example trying to um raise funds uh in order to help a lot of the uh sure. families that were directly impacted on October 7th by the horrific attack um so we do what we can um and yeah uh we're all hoping for better days and the best that I can do in that regard is just pray for peace, because that ultimately is the best deal at the end of the day. Um, Atai, I want to now talk about Be Hero. What's the impetus behind this? We know that there's been a level of stress also when it comes to the number of bees available for pollination. What led to Be Hero and what exactly do you do? Um, right. So I guess the first thing is um, in terms of what what exactly be here we're, we're a precision pollination company so we're, we're uh um taking um something that has been around for for many years if uh, we can call it uh, legacy beekeeping uh and we combine it with uh cutting edge technology that we have developed over the years 
and we're just uh, uh, making the entire pollination process uh, uh, better. Uh, it's better for the bees, it's better for the beekeeper, and it's better for the for the growers uh, that rely on 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 those pollination services. And ultimately, it is better for everybody that eats food, <laughs> right? So. Um, the 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 population in the world is constantly growing, and uh, you know uh, um, we're going to have to feed a lot more mouths uh, over the next um, uh, few decades, mm-hmm. and it's becoming harder and harder. Right? Uh, there's not a lot. If if you look at a graph, farmland over the years haven't really increased in in last few decades right uh, um, but the amount of food that you need to produce have increased significantly so the idea is to to produce more food per you know square piece of land right and <clears throat> we've been facing a lot of challenges with uh, uh with pollinators in generally over the past few years and what be here does at the moment is Helping helping beekeepers and the bees uh, um, in better maintenance of the hives during during the year, um, uh, lowering mortality rates, uh, increasing the efficiency of the entire process, and and then if, uh, increasing the efficiency of actually matchmaking between hives and acres that needs pollination uh, in order to provide. Uh, the growers with the best best pollination services available uh, that will increase uh, in turn uh, the the uh, productivity of 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 the field. Hi, I really like where you started with that and and calling it precision pollination because we think about every aspect of food production. We have become so much more efficient. And it only makes sense that we don't just set beehives out there, but we, we set beehives and target a certain way so that we get the greatest impact of pollination with the least amount of uh, of energy expended. And in this case, it's energy on behalf of the bee. So I, I never put it into context that you could have precision pollination, similar to what we're doing with precision farming, in, say, nutrient application in certain parts of the field. You're exactly right. Um, precision farming is not is not uh, is not is something that we we've been living living with uh, uh, for a while now. You know, precision farming is 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 already pretty well known in the Western world, mm-hmm. and, and precision pollination just taps into that uh, to that idea of doing everything in a more precise way that produces more food, uses less resources, and p- hopefully also costs less money. You know, that's what sustainability is all about. You want to have a sustainable farming system, then you have to you have you have to be able to do that. And and what we do is exactly that. So just as an example, um with with the type of of um of services that we're able to provide our beekeepers, our, our partner beekeepers, our beekeepers have reported uh uh 33% less colony loss than the national average here in the United States right and it's 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 not um it's not by chance it's just because now they have uh visibility into their hives right a, a, a beekeeper is able to take a look at each and every single hive about once in every month right mm. it's not like they go out right. once in they go out every day, 
but they have to go through many, many, many hives, right? And it's it's impossible to to look at all of your hives every day. Uh, first of all, because it's it's super expensive and 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 labor intensive, so you, you just can't do it. The other thing is, every time you open a hive, it's like think about it. Uh, like every time you have a sneeze, uh, you go to the hospital and they open you up and fix the sneeze and close you back together. It's it's impossible to do. You're, you're, people are not going to survive that, and so will the hives, right? You can't just open a hive every day to look into it and understand what's going on. So our technology is is really non-invasive. Uh, it's just a sensor sits idle in in the middle of the colony collects data um, and sends it to our cloud where we analyze all that data and provide both the beekeeper and the grower when the grower gets the hives on their property. Uh, we provide them with a lot of very, very, very useful information that allows them to better manage the entire the entire process. And that is exactly what we're talking about and producing more with less every single day, better management. And that's why we've accomplished from 10 acres to produce enough food to feed one person for a year, 1900 to where today it's less than a third of an acre. We'll continue to have this discussion about where is the stress load in producing bees and keeping them pollinating so that you and I can eat when we return with more. Roll route, connecting the farm to the fork. Hey, I want to also remind you that Apache sprayer technology continues to excel everyone in the field, pun intended. And the reason the excelling, the innovation's there, the reliability's there, but nobody tops what's happening at Sim- Simpson Farm Enterprises when it comes to customer service. High Plains Apache in the northern part of the Great Plains accomplishes the same end goal, getting you what you need. Because let's face it, when you're in the field and in today's world, you cannot afford to be down for very long. And Simpsons understand that and they will take care of you like nothing flat. Go to the website and check out simpsonfarm.com, simpsonfarm.com, or highplainsapache.com. Either one, you can see all of the new technology that's along. Also, now I want to say that uh, nitric oxide is a vital part of healthy living. For the past 18 years, I've taken a nitric oxide supplement every single day. I suggest you at least check out the science and see why I think that it works so well. N-O, that's nitric oxide, N-O-2, number two, letter U, dot com. Trent is your coupon code if you decide you want to order and try it out. The thing that I want you to do is go watch Dr. Nathan Bryan Listen to what he has to say, and it all makes sense. We need to get back to healthy living, and lifestyle and dietary choices are at the top of the list. Just think about what Nina Teicholz had to say in the first half of the broadcast here today. We've had so many of the things that we absolutely are essential to healthy living demonized. Cholesterol is one, meat eating is one, and so is nitrates. Nitrates preserve food. How can it be bad for you? All things in moderation. No2u.com. Trent is your coupon code. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Today, I'm actually en route to Kansas City. I will be with Doug Billings and a Freedom Patriot movement in Kansas City for the next two days. Tomorrow, I'll be broadcasting from the event itself. And then Saturday, it continues. And then Sunday, got to let you know, I'm going to be off into Minneapolis. And I get the opportunity to spend some time with some FFA. No, excuse me. Excuse me, Lynette. It's 4-H students. 
and they are livestock enthusiasts. So that's what my next couple of days look like. Now let's get back to almond production 101, California style. Ty Cannot, my guest, joining us from California. Although I can tell his heart is still in Israel. If I was living in Israel, my heart would be in the Great Plains of America, no doubt about that. Could you give us a sense, because as much as I talk to beekeepers in the Great Plains, and I know there's this migration of bees to California, how big is the demand for pollination just in the state of California alone? Right, so um, uh, California produces 99% of the almonds going into America and about 82% of the almonds worldwide. Right, That means there's... uh, uh, quite a big piece of land but in in terms of you know when you look at it globally it's it's a very small piece of land with a lot of almond trees planted on it and all these almond trees uh need pollinators to move to move the um the pollen from one one flower to another right and that doesn't happen uh naturally when the amount of trees that you have on that piece of land is not natural so you have to mm-hmm. bring hives in manually right bring the hives in and uh and make sure that you have enough pollinators to take care of that piece of land um in reality um over the past at least a decade um the 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 demand for bees essentially consumes all the commercially grown hives in the united states so literally beekeepers from montana from uh, uh, Michigan, from from Florida, from Texas, from California, everybody brings their hives into California uh, around January of every year mm-hmm. uh, in order to in order to pollinate almonds during uh, February and March. Uh, that how big that is how big the demand uh, is. So, hey, um, if I could just interrupt you for a minute because I, I'm a livestock producer. So I've had cattle, pigs, horses my entire life. And um, I, I always marvel that that was the case because with our livestock, we're, we're reluctant to bring in new additions to the herd. But if we do bring in new additions, we go through a, a biosecurity protocol and safety check. We'll test them for, if it's a pig, we'll test them for PERS or, or whatever disease is top of mind. So the co-mingling aspect of livestock is what leads to potential disease and problems. And I always marveled that I, I would be, I was in uh, Maryland at the University of Maryland and they were talking, I, had, I interviewed a beekeeper there, and they were talking about the bees that go from Maryland to California and Florida to California, North Dakota to California. I'm like, how can we co-mingle all of these bees and avoid having disease challenges like we talk about with livestock and the co-mingling? So you, you can't really avoid it because what you're what you're describing is, is exactly right. Basically, in California, you have a huge Petri dish of bee disease uh, during those months. Um, because everybody brings their own issues with them into California. Um, the one thing that is being inspected on the border is, uh, you know, fire ants. You know, they inspect the pallets, make sure that the, the, the pallets coming from Texas and Florida uh, don't carry fire ants with them uh, going into California. Uh, but uh, it's 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 impossible to really go through every hive and understand whether or not it's infected with a certain disease. Mm-hmm. So beekeepers work really hard throughout the year to try and control the uh, the infestation of varroa mites, 
um, uh, Broa as a parasite, probably the the biggest uh, uh, enemy of of bee population in general, because uh, it's also a vector for for so many other viruses and and diseases. And so, yeah, during during those months, there's definitely a a, a lot of uh, movement of different pathogens um, and viruses. Uh, uh, between hives, because we do know bees uh, drift between between hives. They can wake up one morning, get out of the hive, and end it up in in somebody else's hive. It happens at a certain ratio, and, uh, and 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 it is an issue. It is an issue right now. Beekeepers are dealing with it by first of all losing a lot of their hives during the year, and they have to perform a lot of very labor intensive work in order to take care of their hives. Um, what we what we do, uh, our addition is we basically provide a beekeeper with another very very, uh, very important tool in their toolbox. Right, it's not just their eyes and their smoker and their hive tool. Now they have this sensor that provides provides them with information twenty four seven wherever they are about what's going on inside their hive. And, and and most beekeepers know what to do when they understand there is a problem, mm-hmm. but they don't know when the problem starts. And in many cases, we're actually able to see the problem before a human will be able to see the problem just by going through the hives quickly and and, and forming a job. So um, we're going to be able to detect the problem earlier and provide the beekeeper with that information that is so, so, so important. And then... While we help our beekeepers maintain their hives in a better way, the hives get to the pollination stage a lot, uh, 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 a lot better. They're more prepared. They're bigger. They're stronger. Bigger, stronger hives are better, better pollinated by a lot. Um, and so we're able to provide a better pollination service to 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 the growers that choose to work with us. It's um, it, we're doing a lot of work with the beekeeper year round in order to bring those hives into pollination in the best way possible. So take care of the bees, like I said in the beginning, take care of the bees, we take care of the of the beekeepers, and we take care of the growers that produces the food eventually. How critical are we on the minimum number of bees needed for pollination of the food? And let's just talk about the United States. Right. So it, we're, we're right now 100% is utilized, basically, right? So we're at that point already. Um, the the reason why we're we have enough bees is because beekeepers are putting so much work into this, um, and and obviously every year the the cost of of doing that uh, rises because uh, labor is more expensive, fuel is more expensive, diesel, um, everything is is a little more expensive, and so pollination prices are going to go up. And when pollination prices are going to go up, the price of food is going to go up because the growers will have to sell the the fruit for higher prices if they have to pay more to grow that fruit. And and so the the when we're able to bring more efficiency into that process, reduces the 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 cost for for the beekeeper to grow to grow bees, reduces the cost for the grower to actually uh, uh, acquire pollination services. Then, then that will affect everyone. Eighty-two percent of the world's almonds are grown in California. That's a big number. It is a big number. Yeah. Final minute. 
Aitai, what, what do you want us to take home from this? Well, first of all, uh, when you see a bee wander around, don't kill it. Uh, <laughs> don't go it, get the raid. <laughs> it, it is good for everyone to have bees. And uh, yeah, if you know a grower, um, tell them about Bee Hero. Um, we'll be happy to sit down, explain about our service, and um, we're able to support any and all pollination activities uh, in the countries in which we we work. So the entire United States, obviously. And um, yeah, uh, we should just what what other countries do you work in? Uh, currently, we're operational uh, in uh, the U.S. in um, Australia. These are our two main locations, the U.S. and Australia. We do some work in, in Canada, Europe, Israel, um, uh, South America as well. These are not uh, commercial yet. It's, it's more of exp uh, exploratory and, and, and so on, but we will get there too. Eitai Kanat, thank you for taking the time to join us. And uh, we'll keep abreast of what's going on in the pollination world and look for more precision pollination down the road. Thank you so much for your time and for having me. My pleasure. And with that, Aitai, all that's left to say is that uh, we have successfully journeyed down that path, connecting food producers to food consumers. And a lot to chew on here today. Pun intended. Now, almonds or ribeye? Or both. Don't need to choose between one or the other. All roads do lead to a roll route. I want to spend a moment talking about a reliable supply of electricity. We burn coal, we generate electricity. Think about the massive carbon load that was in the soil at the time that this glacier came and buried 150 foot deep the seam of coal. It's massive carbon. That means that there was excessive plant growth. Why are we trying to limit the amount of carbon today at 430 parts per million? I don't know. Why are we trying to turn our nose at coal, a reliable supply where we have 18 years of coal left in the soil to generate electricity, and we have people who are investing billions of dollars in shutting it down. Why? No reason other than wanting to destroy the reliable electric grid that we have in place. Just look at what's happening in ERCOT in Texas. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to electric diminished supplies. The demand is growing. The supply is diminishing. It's intermittent. Lignite continues to burn no matter what the wind, rain, snow, blizzard. It doesn't matter. You burn coal, you generate electricity. That's what we count on. Lignite.com for full details about that. Certified Piedmontese continuing to provide the tender beef supplies that the consumer is demanding and will pay a premium for. But in this case, what you really want to know is that these are Great Plains cattlemen working together to produce a consistently tender supply of beef. Now, in many cases, we work with other producers like Cross Diamond. And Cross Diamond Red Angus Influence Bull Sale is going to be December the 11th at the ranch, Bertrand, Nebraska, Selling 250 Red Angus bulls, 450 Red Angus bred females. The catalog is now online. That's CrossDiamondCattle.com. CrossDiamondCattle.com. In fact, I know that there are many Red Angus-influenced cows out in this country that are bred to Piedmontese bulls. 
That cross is tremendous. I personally use limousine, but if you are into Red Angus and you want a, a supply of Red Angus genetics that will consistently get it done, at least call Scott Ford and say, hey, Trent's telling me your sale's coming up. What's the deal? Let me know what's happening. And, by the way, the Fords for the 13th consecutive year will be donating the proceeds from Lot 21. They call him the 21-Gun Salute. Proceeds from that bull, 100% go to the All-American Beef Battalion. December 11th, Bertrand, Nebraska.